Good morning. My name is Matthew, and I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church. And today we're coming to the close of our Following Jesus series that we started at the beginning of the new year, talking about three ideas that should shape and guide our faith as well as our lives. We're supposed to be with Jesus, we're supposed to be like Jesus, and we're supposed to do the things that Jesus does. Those are the things that are supposed to shape and mark and guide us in our faith. A part of that, though, we've been talking about the disciplines and the ideas and practices of of how we build up our faith, though, the trellis on which we build our faith. And some of those things have involved Sabbath, fasting, being people of love, having a kingdom vision where we see others in ourselves as Christ sees us, being people marked by prayer. Today, as we conclude the series and as we move towards Holy Week starting this next Sunday on Palm Sunday and then having Good Friday and Easter shortly thereafter, we're talking about a subject that I think often gets overlooked and overcomplicated. A subject that I think we don't talk enough about in the church. And when I say the church, I mean all churches. Today we're going to talk about evangelism. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Because for all of us in this room, we come at this word and this topic with a lot of different memories and ideas and pictures in our mind of what we think of. I know for myself, one of the images that comes to my mind is a picture of street evangelism or street preaching, similar to this, right? If you've been to any major city like Chicago or Detroit or Indianapolis or even Grand Rapids, at some point or another, you've probably interacted with someone with a megaphone or a microphone shouting at people on a spectrum of encouragement to shame. They'll say stuff like, Jesus loves you, and then they'll also say, repent or burn in hell. Right? The kingdom of God is near, repent. I've had a lot of interactions with street preachers, and I want to be clear, I'm not trying to diminish that. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts to get in front of people, especially strangers, and share what's on your heart. And so I want to be clear, I do acknowledge the courage it takes to be a street evangelist, but one story that comes to my mind, my parents had taken me up to the Pacific Northwest to celebrate my graduation from college. So they took me up to Seattle, and I I love hockey, and so like, do you want to drive over the border and go to a Vancouver Canucks hockey game? I said, yes, please. And so we drove over, and we're walking to the arena, and I can see right in front of us a gentleman who's shouting and throwing things at people. And I had that split second of like, I could cross here. We don't have to deal with all of this. We can walk out of the way and then just come back. And instead, we kept pressing forward. And as I got closer, I realized that what he was shouting was, you need Jesus over and over and over again. You need Jesus. And he was throwing what I could see was hardcover New Testaments at people. And he set his sight on me. And he said, you need Jesus and just whips one. And something uh, instinctual, something from my gut, just yelled out, bro, chill. Like, calm down. I'm getting a degree in ministry. I'm going to be a pastor. And like mid-throw, he said, never mind. And I landed at my feet, and he said, you can keep the book. You can keep the free book. And I was like, awesome, free literature. So it's still in my office. But I know that that left a bad taste in my mouth. That's not my only interaction with street evangelists. I've seen some really good examples, and I've seen some really bad examples. I've seen people preach the gospel of God, and I've also seen people preach condemnation and eternal damnation 
upon strangers who they don't even know their story. And ultimately, for Christians, we look and we just scoff and we say, oh, I would never do that. But think of all the people who have no faith background, and if this is their only interaction with it, they walk away and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. Another picture that comes to my mind is a door-to-door salesman style evangelism. Um, The type of people who come and knock on your door and say, I want to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The people who it feels like they're a salesman of like vacuums, but instead it's salvation. And you're just a client on the list that they're trying to make sure they've hit their quota. Again, this takes courage and this takes guts to go door to door. But I know for a lot of my friends who have been on the receiving end of this experience, Christian or not, it can be a little bit difficult to swallow. It can be a little bit difficult and uncomfortable of an experience. And my fear is that we've shaped our entire idea of evangelism around misconception and misrepresentations. That we make evangelism into something that is a calling that only a few have. Like that's a job for pastors or missionaries or evangelists. We'll let the professionals take care of that. Instead of recognizing that evangelism is something that we as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a part of a church. It's something that we're all expected to participate in. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected. And just before he ascends to heaven, he gathers some of his closest disciples together, and some of his closest followers, and he gives them their final marching order, so to speak what we affectionately call the Great Commission. And he tells them this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus never says or stipulates this is for some people. He says this to the body of believers who are starting to coagulate and consolidate into what we would look at as the church, what you'll see in the book of Acts moving forward, what we often can refer to as like the fifth gospel. The church is starting to institutionalize, and at this point, we have a bunch of church leaders from all different backgrounds, all different education levels, and Jesus calls all of them to do three things, make disciples, baptize, and teach. It's not stipulated upon how many degrees you have, how long you've been a part of church, how many times you've read the Bible. At this point, the Bible was still being written. We're called to go and make disciples, to lead, to guide, to teach, to draw people closer to who Jesus is. This is a call upon all of us, and it's not optional. By being a part of the church, we are called to be evangelists and to share the good news. But evangelism is a churchy word. And like a lot of churchy words, uh, sometimes we just like to assume we're all on the same page, which creates a lot of confusion because rarely are we on the same page. And so I figured it'd be helpful if I gave you guys the root word of evangelism, which is a Latin word, evangelion. And evangelion means to share the good news, to share the gospel. It's not all of these methods and means and all of these really difficult to understand apologetics. It's literally just that share the message of Christ with people. Share the power and transformation of what the good news of Jesus Christ means for all people, not just us. And so today what I want to do, I want to talk about three practices that make evangelism a little bit more accessible for us. I want to talk about three ideas and practices that can help us look at evangelism as something that isn't this far-off ideal, but instead is something very simple 
at its root. And the first idea is this. Evangelism is personal and invitational. I know when I was a kid, the idea I had shaped around what evangelism was, was that it was an interaction between strangers. Um, A very common thing, like when kids were trick-or-treating, is there was always that one house that no one liked where they'd give you a tract or a pamphlet explaining the gospel instead of candy, and we just avoided that house, right? We would pass these pamphlets out and say, well, look at this cartoon. It explains the whole salvation journey, and it was helpful, kind of. Or we looked at street evangelism, these people who would give a very nugget-sized truth and explain a little bit about the gospel in a passerby situation where a stranger is just walking by and they're just being shouted at. And so I was fully convinced evangelism was something you do to strangers. And what I started to realize was that like all things, evangelism works best in our relationship with someone you already know. Because we don't like listening to strangers. I don't take strangers advice about my life that much. But if my wife tells me, a little bit more prone to listen. If Aaron or Sarah tell me, a little more prone to listen, because I know them. They've invested in my life. Guys, this isn't a crazy concept. I trust that they want what's best for me. The stranger doesn't know me. And there's nothing, I'm not diminishing their value as a human being, just acknowledging the fact that we are always more open and willing to listen to people we already know. There's a beautiful example of this in the Gospel of John. Jesus is starting to accrue his disciples, and one of those people is Philip. And Philip uh, gets, meets Jesus, and Jesus says, come and follow me, which in that day, it wasn't some passive thing to follow a rabbi, was to give up your entire life to the rabbi. It meant you saw something in this person that you believed and trusted them, that you wanted to devote your entire life to them. And so Philip's life has changed And the first thing he does after meeting Jesus is he goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel. This is what it says. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets foretold, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel asked, and Philip said, come and see. I always wonder when I read the story, two things. The first, where does this apprehension come from? Sometimes we can miss things in the Bible just based on cultural uh, bridges or gaps, right? We live in the 21st century. This was written near the first century. And so sometimes there's gaps in our knowledge just culturally. One of them is the importance of the Messiah. The Messiah was something that the Jewish culture held onto very tightly and had been waiting for so long because the Messiah was the Savior, And the Jewish community had been holding out for this savior for so long to save them from the oppression and abuse they'd experienced from kingdoms like Assyria or Babylon or now Rome. And so they've been waiting for so long and Philip has this interaction. He thinks Jesus might be the guy they've been waiting for. And he tells Nathaniel and says, I think I found him. I think I found the savior. And imagine how crazy this seems to Nathaniel Because his parents, his grandparents, his great-grandparents and beyond would have spent their entire lives waiting for the Messiah who hadn't shown up yet. And then, of all places, he's from Nazareth. Nazareth is some backwoods, no-name town where no one important comes from it. Small town. Rural town. That's not where the Messiah is supposed to come from. And so Nathaniel pushes back, but I want you to think about what Philip says to him. He says, come and see for yourself. 
When we talk about evangelism, we often think we just have to know all the right words and be able to answer all the questions and be able to take all of the pushback and be able to push back equally. And instead, Philip shows us a better way to go about it. He says, instead of having to feel like we need to answer everything or be able to push back equally, instead, invite people in. Invite people to wrestle and to wonder. Because at the end of the day, we learn more from wrestling with our questions than just having them answered. And so at a very base root, one of the practices of evangelism that I want you to know is twofold. That we are invitational, that we are inviting people in and creating an environment where people feel safe enough to ask questions. Safe enough to doubt. Safe enough to not know and be uncertain because the reality is the world we live in prizes certainty even above what's true. We'd rather just know the right answer or at least know an answer. And in evangelism, we're creating environments for people to ask questions, to come and see for themselves. But it happens best in relationship. I've always wondered what Nathaniel would have done if it hadn't been Philip. What if it had just been a stranger, just some guy? Walking by and be like, hey, I think I met the Messiah. And he's like, oh, cool. All right, we just moved past it. But most commentaries I read said Nathan and Philip or Nathaniel and Philip, they were best friends. And so even despite all of the apprehension that Philip feels towards this Messiah that, or that Nathaniel's felt towards this Messiah, he still accepts the invitation to come and see for himself. We're willing to listen to the people who have invested in our lives because we trust that they have what's best for us at heart, that they have best of intentions. How many of you have seen the show Shark Tank? NBC show or CBS show? My parents and grandparents love this show. Um, and I remember when it came out, I was in high school and all my parents and grandparents, they have um, business degrees and all that. And I definitely don't. And I sat down with them and all of these people were coming to sell their product or their idea or their company. And they'd say, I will sell my idea for this much equity. I had no clue what that meant. So I asked my mom, I said, okay, speak to me as if I was five. Tell me what equity is. And she said, equity, very simply, is ownership. When you accrue equity, you're accruing influence and ownership of a company. So the more equity you have, the more ownership you have, the more influence that you gain. And what struck me now, looking back, is how much built into evangelism emotional equity is. We are more apt to listen to people who have invested time and invested love and care into us. And so we're more willing to listen to the people who have a greater influence in our life rather than just a stranger. And so when we talk about evangelism, when it works at its best, it's most effective is when we utilize the relationships that already exist in our lives. When we look at our friends and our family and our workplace, not as just um, passive opportunity, but we look at it as a way to come and see, to invite people to participate. The second practice I have for us is that evangelism is simply sharing your story. The biggest pushback I hear when I talk about evangelism is people say, well, I just don't know enough. I, don't, I haven't read the Bible enough. I haven't you know, gotten my life together. And why I think that's interesting is because uh, the more we learn about life, the more we learn about God, the more we realize we don't actually know that much. It's a really perplexing situation in academia that the further you get up the ladder of education, you're like, wow, I do not know anything, right? My point here 
is that if you keep waiting until you feel like you know enough to participate in faith, if you keep waiting until you feel like you've read the Bible enough to evangelize well, you're never going to do it. You're going to keep pushing it off for some day. And the truth is when we look at the Bible, what we see is not people gaining all of this knowledge and then starting. We see people just sharing what God is doing in their life. Unbridled, unrequited transformation. A story we talked about last week comes from John chapter 9. A man has been born blind. And Jesus heals him by putting mud on his eyes. And he receives his sight, and the religious leaders see that, and they want to discredit both the man, but also Jesus. And so they pull the man aside, and they start questioning him, asking him all of these details about how Jesus could do this amazing miracle. And this is what the man says, in short. Whether he, Jesus, is a sinner, I do not know. There is one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. This guy, at this point, barely knows Jesus. Heck, he's barely seen Jesus. He hasn't read the Bible. It's still being written. He might have had the Old Testament, but not the New, because it was being lived out in his midst. This man didn't know everything there was to know about theology. didn't know everything there was about God. What he did know is how God changed and transformed his life, and he shared that with his community. The truth of the matter is, evangelism at its very simplistic core is sharing what God has done and what he continues to do. Because one of the most powerful testimonies is, I was blind, but now I see. And I think we all have a story like that, maybe not as dramatic as receiving sight for the first time. But we all have a story about what Jesus did in our life, what we were like and what we are now like, how we found purpose and meaning, how we found a new identity in Christ, how we felt love for the first time. Another example of this is Jesus is walking through Samaria and he winds up at a well and starts having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, which is a whole can of worms culturally that we're not going to get into right now. And this is, Jesus is talking to this woman and she comes day in and day out to receive water from the well. And Jesus looks at her and he says, you keep coming for physical water, but you haven't asked for living water. And we know Jesus isn't necessarily talking about water. He's talking about some metaphor and analogy to the purpose and identity we find in our relationship with Christ, the way that we find love and satisfaction, not in the world, but in God. But at the end of this very brief conversation, it says in John chapter four, the woman left her water jar and went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So they left the town and made their way towards Jesus And many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Testimony is another churchy word. It basically just means your story. How you got from point A to point B, what God is continuing to do in your life. This woman has a 10-minute interaction with Jesus. She doesn't know everything. She doesn't know all of the answers. What she does know is that Jesus offers transformation in living water. And so she tells everyone about it. And it says the town came to know of Jesus because of this woman's testimony. Another example, if you'll indulge me, comes from Gospel of Luke chapter 2. The shepherds are out in their field watching over their flock. And the angels come to them and say, we want to tell you about this baby being born in a town nearby named Bethlehem. So the shepherds leave their flock and they go see this baby, Jesus. 
And after seeing the Christ, it says, after they had seen the child, they spread the message they had received about him. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Shepherds, in the grand scheme of things, were on the lower end of the totem pole when it came to education. Shepherding was a blue-collar, working man's job. The people who were shepherds were often rough around the edges. They often failed out of school. And so these shepherds, these inarticulate people who the culture would have looked at and been like, early shepherds? You chose the shepherds as some of the first evangelists? These shepherds are the first people. They don't know Jesus yet. He's just a baby. Jesus hasn't started his teaching ministry yet. But they see the Christ and it so transforms their life that they can't help but talk about it. They can't help but share the ways that God has transformed and changed their life and is continuing to change their life. And so when we talk about evangelism, something we need to talk about is it's not about knowing all the answers. It's not an academic exercise in accruing more and more information where we just collect and collect and collect. And then one day we've made it and now we can talk about it. You don't graduate from learning. One of the things that we hold in this denomination, it's probably one of my favorite elements of this denomination, is that we honor and love the idea of lifelong learning. People who strive after knowing more and more about God, who strive to grow deeper and deeper in their faith. And so this is not an excuse necessarily. This is not a justification for us not to try. What this is an acknowledgement of is that we are called to evangelize now. Not when we've learned enough. Not when we've gotten our life together. Right now. And evangelism, very simply, is just sharing the gospel. Sharing the good news of what Jesus has done and continues to do through you. Third practice. Evangelism involves our actions. There's a very famous quote attributed to St. Francis. It's a personal favorite of mine. He says, preach the gospel always. And when necessary, use words. His idea for this was that our entire lives, the way that we interact, the way that we treat people, is preaching. It's under scrutiny. People look at it. And therefore, it reflects on Christ. And the idea that I want to talk about is sometimes we can spend so much time focused on the methods and means of our evangelism that we don't worry about our actions and our lives. And so we talk a lot about Jesus, but we don't necessarily always live like Jesus. And there becomes a gap in our life of what we say and what we do. We talk about transformation, but we don't live transformed lives. And the problem is it creates a hypocrisy, which is often one of the greatest judgments of the church, especially in the West, is that we're judgmental and hypocritical. And my fear is that sometimes it's true. Paul wrote a letter in the New Testament, a very short one called Titus. And he wrote it to a guy named Titus who was starting the early church in the small island called Crete. And Crete was off of the coast of Greece. And it's where we get the idea of to be Cretan. Or as my mom would sometimes refer to people as little Cretans. The idea was those were kids who were acting wild. I never got called a Cretan. I was called an angel. But my brother, um, but the idea of Cretans was it was an island full of debaucherous wild living. People made extremely immoral decisions. And so Titus is starting the early church in Crete and Paul writes a letter to encourage him and also guide him a little bit. And this is what he says in chapter one, verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. 
He would go on later and call them detestable, disobedient, hateful. And we're like, whoa, pump the brakes, Paul. It's a heavy indictment to make. And on a superficial reading, we say, man, Paul is really laying into the Cretans, when in reality, if you read the book in a whole, you realize he's not talking about the Cretans. He's talking about the religious leaders, the Judaizers, the people who spent their entire life devoted to learning about God, talking about God, and trying to guide people closer to God, but in the process, never worried about their own actions and never worried about where they were leading people, which in reality was further from God further from their relationship in faith. What Pastor Craig Groeschel would refer to as Christian atheism. The idea is that we say we believe in Christ, but we live as if he doesn't exist. We see it all the time. Or Brennan Manning put one of my favorite indictments uh, on paper. He said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. My fear is that this is a lot more true than we'd like to give it credit. That we're so consumed with how we approach things like evangelism, how we approach the theory and ideas of faith that we never actually let it make an impact. That we're so consumed with having all of the right answers that we never live the right way. Because the truth is, my mom would say this all the time to me. She'd say, you're the only Bible some people will read. And she understood that when you look at a secular culture, Most people are never going to crack the spine of a Bible. Heck, most Christians won't crack the spine of a Bible. Which means their entire identity and image of what Christianity and Christ is, is formulated based on us. Whether fairly or unfairly. And the problem for that is it's a huge responsibility on us. To have our lives match up with our words to live a coherent lifestyle that matches up with what we preach about Christ. There was a trend in the 1990s that you might be familiar with called the WWJD movement. Um, I have a ton of these bracelets up in my office right now. The idea is, what would Jesus do? And it was a kind of cliche reminder to us that in all circumstances, we are supposed to embody the life of Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't obviously refer to a lot of modern 21st century problems necessarily. It doesn't talk about cell phones or modern dating or a modern economy. But it does teach us how to live with integrity. It does teach us how to have God-like character. To love and to forgive and to show grace. To show compassion and kindness. To love our enemy. And what the WWJD movement got right is it was a constant reminder that in all circumstances, we are a reflection of Christ to the people around us, for better or for worse. And if we're the only Bible some people will read, the question is, are we leading people closer to God or further away? Are we a good translation, so to speak? So my question for us is when we talk about evangelism, yes, it has a lot to do with what we say, but it has an equal and proportionate amount to do with how we live. Because you can say the right stuff, but if you don't live the right way, we undercut our entire evangelism. It nullifies it. Because people can see through. We have a pretty good internal lie detector. So today, as we conclude, I want to remind you of something Peter said to the early church in one of his letters, 1 Peter. He says this, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. 
And if someone asks you your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Or as another passage in the Bible says, be prepared in season and out of season to explain the joy that we have. Evangelism is not optional. It's a calling put on us the moment we enter this faith journey and we join the church. And again, I don't mean this church, I mean all church. The global church. And when we enter that relationship, we are saying that we are going to be evangelists. We are going to lead, teach, guide, and baptize. We're going to go make disciples, and we are going to be a constant reminder of the hope and joy that we have found in Christ. But at the end of the day, it is a lot more simple than we make it seem. It's about being invitational people. People who create relationships, invest in others, and draw them closer to God by inviting them to come and see. And maybe you're in this room and you're like, I don't know where to start with all that. What I would say, we have invite cards in the lobby. That's a really easy passive way. Other ways I'd say, who are the people in your life who need to be introduced to Jesus? Who are the people in your life who you feel like would benefit greatly just from knowing that they're loved? Those are the people that we invite to come and see, to create a space where they're free to ask questions, to doubt, to wonder. Or maybe you're in the space and you're, and you're wondering about your story. There's a joke that my mom used to say. She said, dogs are so busy chasing cars that they don't know what to do when they catch one. I think Christians are so busy chasing evangelistic opportunities that we don't know what to do when we get there. I don't think many of us know where to start, what to say. We've never thought through our story. Go home today and think through your story of life before Jesus and after Jesus, the way that your life has been changed and transformed through the love of Christ. So that when opportunities do arise, you are prepared in season and out of season. You are ready to share the hope and joy that you have in Christ. But it also involves our actions in our life. It involves who we're becoming and how we treat people. And maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, man, I, if people create their whole image of God based off of me, it's not a good one. If that's the case, and you're wondering how to live like Christ, a great place to start is by reading about Christ. Pastor Aaron talks about this all the time. Read the Gospels. And when you're done reading the Gospels, start over. And when you're done, start over. And spend the rest of your life reading about who Jesus is and how the church is supposed to operate. Because when you ask yourself, what does it look like to live Christ-like lives? Look at Christ and do that. Find a mentor. Find someone in your life. You're never too old to have a mentor in faith. Find someone who's a mature believer, who's been around the block, so to speak. Talk to them. Because when you're not living like Christ, they'll hold you accountable. They'll call it out. They'll help you to see the error of your ways or see when you're not necessarily being a good reflection of Jesus. And at the end of the day, find a reminder. We're insanely forgetful people. I'll tell you, I'll be walking around my house with my keys and like, where are my keys? All right? We're forgetful. And we're not trying to be, but sometimes we can forget to follow Jesus. It sounds so silly, right? We can forget to embrace the reflection of Christ. And in those moments, having a WWJD bracelet or having something to remind you to live like Christ in all situations is helpful. So what is that for you? At the end of the day, evangelism is pretty simple. It's just sharing the good news. It's sharing the good news to a world filled with bad news. It's offering living water to a starving and parched land. It's offering an identity that says we are loved and we are cared for.
So may we be messengers of that good news. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be in this space and worship together. Thank you for the love that you have shown us. May we be good ambassadors of you. May we be invitational and build relationships and live like Christ, sharing our story of the ways that you've transformed us. May we be good messengers of the good news. Amen.